core text of the Seder, according to the Mishnah, is the parashim called Mikor Bikurim, so in the Chumash's Devarim, chapter 26. And we read four verses at the Seder. The Mishnah says to read the whole parasha. We don't do that. We read four verses, Vidoresh Korah Parsha Kula, and we engage in Midrash on the Parsha. So the Haggadah, as we have seen, provides us with drushos, 21 of them actually. 18 are supported by biblical verses. Three do not have biblical verses. First two don't have biblical verses. Arami Ovedovi, Vayer Mitzrayma, there's no other text that's quoted explicitly. There's an allusion to a text, but there's no explicit text. But of the remaining 19 drushot, 18 have verses and whatever. So the question really is why three don't. That's not our problem now. But in any event, 18 do. I have mentioned in the past that it's a very strange kind of midrash. It says Pasuk in one place, and then the midrash says, as it is written, and they cite a verse from a different place. In fact, the Haggadah is exceedingly odd because of the 18 biblical verses that are cited to support, as it were, the verses in Devarim, 13 of the 18 come from the first three chapters of Sefer Shemot. It seems extraordinarily bizarre. Why not just read the book of Shemot, which is the story of the Exodus? We don't do that. We read four verses in Devarim, and then we cite the verses in Sefer Shemot. Now, what's interesting to note is that of the four verses that are read at the Haggadah, beginning with our Amir Vedavi, which is chapter 26 of Devarim, and there are supporting verses from the Bible, mostly from the Torah, the second and third verses, namely chapter 26, it's verse number... Six in verse number seven. That's the second verse we read. And the third verse is, The two intermediate verses that are read, that have drashot attached to them, handed to us by the one who put together the Haggadah, all of these supporting verses are from Sefer Shemot, every one of them. Every one. Seven midrashim, seven drashot, seven verses from the book of Shemot. I mean, we read this every year, and you don't even think about how odd this is to cite verses from Sefer Shemot to elucidate a text in Dvarim. Why not just start with Shemot to begin with? Okay. First thing this morning is to look at the drashot that we have on these two intermediate verses. And the drashot, even without a Haggadah, by the way, just opened up two places. Opened up Dvarim chapter 26 and open up the first chapter of the book of Exodus, and you'll see what they're doing. Actually, the first two and a half chapters. Let's start with the first one. It says, This is the citation from Dvarim. We cried out to the God of our forefathers. Crying out to God, typically in the Chumash, means to cry out in prayer, cry out out of distress. And the Haggadah then says, As it is written, and they cite a verse at the end of the second chapter of Exodus. Chapter 2 of Exodus, at the end of the second chapter, they cite a verse, as it is written, and the verse they cite is the following. End of chapter 2, it says that, after Moshe runs away, and this and that, and then, the very end of chapter 2, says that, verse number 23, came to pass in those many days, Vayamad Melech Mitzrayim, King of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the slavery, of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cries came up unto God 
by reason of bondage. So that's the verse that's cited to, one might say, support, but it can't really be support because the text doesn't need support, but to somehow illuminate what this verse means by Nitzak el Hashem And presumably what the Haggadah is after is the following problem. Sounds like you're crying out to God as a kind of prayer. That's what it typically means in the Bible, to cry out to God in prayer. But the fact of the matter is that when you read the verse in Exodus, it doesn't sound that way, actually. It sounds like the cry to God is not a cry of prayer. Because it says, it came to pass in those days that the king of Egypt died, and they sighed from the avodah, from the slavery, and they cried out. And the cries ascended to God, mina avodah, from the slavery. So what it sounds like when you read the text is something different. It's not actually prayer. It's more a cry of distress in the sense that comes from the slavery. It's a cry that's related to the situation that they find themselves in as opposed to a direct appeal. And it was interesting that actually, so the Haggadah interprets that as a kind of prayer. In other words, or we say that God interpreted their cries of woe was me as a kind of prayer, but it required an act of interpretation. It doesn't actually necessarily, it doesn't fit into the normal, what we normally would call prayer. That seems what the Haggadah is after, and it is actually very interesting. The verse itself is interesting for another reason. The text emphasizes, and if you read the verse, verse 23, the phrase that appears twice is min ha'avodah. They cried from the slavery. Now, min ha'avodah actually is, I mean, there are no coincidences in the text. What's interesting is two reflections upon the expression minha avoda. The first is that in the book of Exodus, in chapter 1, which describes the slavery of Israel, the word ayin bedawid, avad, eved, avoda, appears five times. You have inui twice and avoda five times for a total of seven, but very often in the Bible, in chapter 1. Vayavidu Mitzrayim et b'nei Yisrael b'farech, chapter 1, verse number 13 and 14. And there you will find Ayin Bet David five times. And Inui appears twice for a total of seven. But actually here at the end of chapter two, you have twice more the word Avoda for a grand total of seven. That's number one. So the emphasis is here on Avoda. They cried out from the slavery. It doesn't say they cried out from the Inui. They cried out from the slavery and the Torah has something else in mind over here for sure. And that is the following. That as we know, the experience of Israel in Egypt is the fulfillment of the covenant God makes with Abraham in chapter 15 of Breshit. There, actually, Abraham asked God, through what shall I know that I shall possess the land? What has to happen? And God's answer was, And then, God continued, the nation that enslaves them, I will judge. And then they will leave. When God speaks to Abraham about leaving, it's prefaced with the statement, I will punish those who enslave them. And here in this section, chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, is the section in which the Torah tells us that God is about to take action. Because right after it talks about what God sees and knows, Vayeda Elohim being the last word of the section, right away the next verse is about the burning bush. So here it's God taking action. 
what precipitates God's action in the end of chapter 2 is avoda, mino avoda, which is exactly what God said to Abraham, that the nation that enslaves them, I will judge, and then they'll leave. Over here you have the same thing. And what's interesting is further, that Abraham asked God in the covenant, how shall I know? To which God answers, you will certainly know. Certainly know that your descendants will be strangers, enslaved, oppressed. And over here, as God is about to take action in chapter 3 of Exodus, which is the burning bush, the last verse of chapter 2 was, and God knew, as if the Torah is saying, God knows, God remembers, and that's what it says in the Haggadah. Blessed is the God who kept God's promise, that God reckoned the years, to do what God promised to Abraham, now God cites it. So over here you have this business. Now what's interesting about Minha Avoda, to sigh out or to cry out from the Avoda, what is in particular interesting is that in the Torah, when does Israel cry from the slavery? They cry from the slavery, the Chumash says, when the king of Egypt dies. It came to pass in those many years that the king of Egypt died, and Israel sighed from the slavery, and their cries ascended to God from the slavery. So what it sounds like, actually, is when they're actually working, king of Egypt dies, it means there's some kind of a respite, because he's dead. So for a moment, there's a temporary respite, where they're not working as much, presumably. He died. And now, they cry out, Minho Avoda. That's one way to read it. The other way to read it is they're still working, but they cry Minha Avoda because since the king of Egypt dies, there's a ray of hope. And they are, he died, so maybe things could change if the king of Egypt dies. But in either way, either you see it as a ray of hope, because who knows what the next king will do, or because they're not working. They're temporarily not working, but either way, I think it moves in the same direction, which is when they are working, when they're engaged in the Avoda, they don't actually cry out, because they're fully and totally involved in the Avoda. What allows people to cry out, I'm not even saying it's the level of prayer, but God interprets it as a prayer. What allows one to cry out is some kind of a ray of hope or some kind of a respite. And that actually fits in very well with another very interesting theme that emerges in the book of Exodus over the first few chapters. And that is when Moshe goes to Paro and makes the request that he should allow the Israelites to serve God in the desert. Go off in the desert on a three-day journey and to bring sacrifices and to serve God. And Paro absolutely refuses to do that. He says, there's so many of you, how could I possibly allow you to cease from work? In the word Shabbat appears. So there's no Shabbos with Paro. You've got to keep working. And he doesn't give the reason why, and his real reason, but one couldn't understand that very simply as Paro understands that the moment you give people a day off, or a few days off in this case, they begin to see another possibility, that they don't have to be slaves 24-7. And that's the last thing in the world that Paro wants. When you work for Paro, there is no cessation from work. The moment there's a cessation from work, he's in trouble. In contrast, in the book of Exodus, to when you work for God. Because the book of Exodus also ends with building. But with the building with, with the Mishkan, there the Torah emphasizes twice, actually, that Shabbat is essential. You don't work on Shabbos, even to build the Mishkan. The verse is actually interesting in terms of how it reflects upon the situation. But in any event, whether you see it as a cry, just because it's a recognition somehow, or there's a moment where they're not working, so then they can sigh, 
or you see it as maybe a ray of hope, which could be closer to what we would call prayer. But the Haggadah, in any event, is claiming that you have to read the verse of Anitzak El Hashem We cried out to the God of our forefathers. It wasn't that we were davening Shimon Esrei, Bruchat to Hashem Elokeinu Nothing like that. It's that there was some kind of maybe even unconscious understanding, unconscious a sense of a possibility that things could possibly change. So the, the verses in Exodus are not to support the verse in Deuteronomy, obviously, since the verses in Deuteronomy don't need support. It's true. But they are rather to interpret. The suggestion here is that you should interpret Vanitzach El Hashem in light of what it says in the book of Exodus. And the next rush is along the same lines. Vayishma Hashem et God heard our voice. And the Haggadah says, Kamosha Nehmar. As it is written, and they cite the next verse, right? That God, says the Haggadah, heard their cry, and God remembered the covenant. So what, what, what does that add to the verse? It means that in light of the covenant, God has chosen to interpret the cries as a cry for help. It's not so much a cry for help, perhaps, as a cry of pain, of suffering, but God interprets that. Why would God interpret that way? Given the fact that God has made a promise, So the two citations from the end of chapter 2, obviously are not to support, it's not to validate, it needs no validation, but rather the Haggadah suggests that we are interpreting one story in light of the other. Okay, that's the first half of the verse. So the first half of the verse says what God hears, and the second half of the verse says what God sees. God sees three things. God sees onyenu, inui. God sees amoleinu, our travail. And God sees lachatzenu. Now of those three things that God sees, actually... Again, the Haggadah will reference the book of Exodus. Two of the three are explicitly mentioned that God sees. Let's take the first one, for example, Vayarit Onyenu, God saw Inui. And Haggadah cites the verse in Exodus chapter 3. That's the story of the burning bush. God begins to speak to Moshe. And God talks, first says, don't get too close, take off your shoes and all that. And then God says to Moshe, chapter 3, verse number 7. God speech. So God says, I have certainly seen Ani, the travail of my people. Inui often takes the verb to see, by the way. right? As Leah said when she named her first child, God sees my downtrodden state. So there, unlike the second son, where she says, Shema Hashem Anochi. With Shimon, God hears that I am hated, unbeloved, hated, whatever. But child number one, Ruvain, she said, God sees. Why is it God sees in the first instance and God hears in the second? Presumably because in the first instance, you could be in a situation where you can't even cry out, as I just said. She's so miserable, she despairs, she can't even pray. But after the first child is born, and she, God has seen my Inui, then for the second child, she's already crying out. She's reached a point where she can cry out in despair. But the first step is you can't even cry out in despair. So that's the old. So the text is clear. So here you have explicitly, Ro'od shamati 
כי ידעתי את מאחוריו. Yes, Sandra, what do you want to say? A question. Is this beyond our discussion today? Is it not a theological, theological question? What took him so long? In other words, I mean, if in fact what you're saying about Leah is Ra'ah Hashem Ba'onyi, God could see Ba'onyi. I didn't have to cry. And then the second one, by the second time, she's slightly strengthened. She already has an air and her sister doesn't, and she can say, God heard me, because already she can cry out or pray or whatever. So if we're using that as an analogy, doesn't it trouble us that they had to wait a whole lifespan of at least one king and suffer and suffer and three, suffer? Three generations. Three genera- yeah. I know that right. looking backwards, we're building it up because of the generations and the prophecy and the years and the 210 and the 400, whatever. But from the standpoint of a simple idea, Why does, why? I mean, is that a Elie Wiesel kind of question and there's no answer? But why? Well, I don't have an answer, but that the covenant is set up in such a way and made this point many times. Those who suffer do not possess the land. Okay. Those who suffer what? That's the way the Torah sets it up, okay? So, one can ask all kinds of theological questions, but the Torah presents it in this particular way. I mean, there are many questions you can ask. Mm. I don't have the answers. So we're supposed to My only concern is what it says, you know, what you make of it, so how you understand the it. Ra'ah and the Shema. Yeah, you're right. So my point is that why Inui often takes Ra'ah is because the person isn't calling out. Mm-hmm. Because the person is, you could be in a place where you can't even pray. You're not at that level yet, we can actually cry out. What's interesting, the verse, by the way, that is cited by the Haggadah, and on other occasions I have spoken at length about this verse, so I'll mention something here. It's not directly related to that. I mean, everything's connected to God. No, no. It's the verse number seven. Okay. That's the first verse that God says to Moshe. The first thing God says to Moshe. God's about to take action, given the fact that in the previous uh, verses, Moshe named his son Gershom, Ger. So there's Inui, Avdud, and Gerut. So once we did that part of the bargain, God now steps in to do God's part of the bargain. What is particularly striking about verse number seven, however, is the following. I don't take it into this too much right now, but I'll mention it, which is that verse number seven contains three verbs. God says to Moshe, I have seen, God sees. Zakatab shamati, I heard. And the third verse is, Yadati et machovav, I know their pain. Three verbs, to see, to hear, and to know. Now what's interesting is at the end of the previous chapter in which we are told, essentially, that God's about to take action, in those many years, Israel cries out from the slavery. And in verse number 24, God heard their cries. By Yisqar Elohim et Brito, and God remembered God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the last verse of chapter 2, by Yar Elohim et Bnei Yisrael, God saw, by Yeda Elohim, and God knew. Next verse is the burning bush. So God's about to take action, and the Torah emphasizes four things about God. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. Now, when the first verse that God speaks to Moshe, God says to Moshe, I have seen, Ro'o Ra'iti. I have heard, and I know. So therefore, the student, that's us. What's missing? Right. The verb to remember is missing. 
That's what you notice. In other words, it's actually missing. That's different from it's not there. Many things are not there. And they, if it's not simply not there, you can't interpret it. It's not there. But the trick is understanding what's not there and what is missing. Missing means you anticipate that it will be there, but it's not there. That's missing. Not there is simply absent. So not there we don't interpret. There's a missing word which is to remember. So when there's a missing word, we keep it in mind. And we're always looking for that missing word. The truth of the matter is, you really don't find it in chapter 3 at all, or in chapter 4. Zezichri or dar you have, but that's not the same thing. That's how I am that's known. That's Right, but that's how I am known, that's true. But you actually have God remembering later. You have that expression explicitly later on, and it's very important where you have it. Not in chapter 3 and 4, but you have it in chapter 6 when God speaks again to Moshe. And there, if we're studying the book of Exodus now, what is required to look at is God speaks twice to Moshe. God speaks to Moshe in his snare, which is chapter 3 and 4. And then God speaks to Moshe a second time after Moshe returns from Egypt, Pharaoh having made the people's lives more miserable, the Israelites themselves and the leaders blaming Moshe and Aaron for the mess, and then Moshe blames God. Why did you send me? And then God says, one second. And God speaks again. And there God says to Moshe, I remember my covenant. And the question, of course, is why does God tell Moshe about the covenant only in chapter 6 and not tell Moshe about the covenant in chapter 3? Not only that, when you read chapter 6, in God's description of the land to which God intends to bring Israel, it is radically different from God's description of the land in chapter 3. Two radically different descriptions. In chapter 3, it's a land of milk and honey. It's a good land. It's a broad land. It's a big land where big nations live. And in chapter 6, it's different. It's the land that I swore to give through an oath, and it's the land of their sojournings. So that's actually very important from a methodological standpoint. And of course, it gives us a certain insight into the education of Moshe. For whatever reason, Moshe is not ready to hear what God is saying about the covenant. Moshe has no understanding of the covenant in chapter 3 or 4. It's only in chapter 6 that God instructs Moshe about. But we, the reader, know that what is driving God is that God remembers the covenant. So that's a very interesting verse, a very important verse, obviously. The first thing God says to Moshe, You know it's important for a different reason, not that it has to be demonstrated, self-evident, but actually for a totally different reason, I became very interested in that verse. And I'll tell you what it is. Because the verse was actually used by somebody else, one of my favorite human beings who ever lived. I don't know the name of this person. But the person is the person that wrote a book we call Shmuel. The book of Shmuel begins that way. The book of Shmuel begins with a prayer of somebody who wants to change the world, sees a very bad world. And she's actually, she's standing inside the temple, which is completely corrupt. And she turns to God and says, give me a chance to change the world. And her prayer is one verse long, actually. That's how she starts it. If you will certainly see the misery of your slave woman. And what she's praying for, will give me a child, right? And this child I will dedicate to God. And the child that she gets, of course, is Shmuel. And the character of Shmuel, both in other biblical texts and certainly as understood rabbinically, I don't mean it's rabbinic, I mean it's there, the rabbis noticed it, obviously, is that the character of Shmuel is based completely upon Moshe. In fact, we even have it in the Psalms. 
Moshe v'yaron b'cho anav u'shmuel b'korei shemo. Karim ha'ashem v'hu. So she's asking for another Moses, basically. Now, nobody is Moses. You know what I mean? But he's similar to Moses. He doesn't have all of Moses' strong points. He has many failings. But he's a Moshe character. So the book of Shmuel basically begins by Chana asking God to take us out of Egypt. And that's actually important for us today as well. Because you see that the author of Shmuel understands Mitzrayim not as a geographical place. In fact, the calling to Shmuel, which is completely based upon chapter 3 of Exodus, the burning bush, Shmuel's calling, right, which begins in chapter 3 of Shmuel. In those days, the vision of God was scarce, and the flame of God had not yet gone out, and Ailey's eyes were dim, he could not see. All the imagery of the lights going out, which begins chapter 3 of Shmuel. And God calls Shmuel, where is Shmuel? at the time. He's sleeping inside the Beit HaMikdash, probably next to the Ark. And the point of the book, of course, is you could be in exile in Egypt. You could also be in exile in the Kodesh Kodashim, too. Because that's how it starts. They're in Egypt. Egypt becomes, for the book of Shmuel, not a geographical place. Egypt becomes a, a state of being, a state of distance, and especially a place where God does not speak, which is the hallmark of Egypt. God doesn't talk. God talks to say, get out, but God otherwise won't talk to Egypt. All of the years that Yaakov's in Mitzrayim, and all the generations, God never talks. God only talks to Moshe at the snare. God begins to speak at the snare. The revelation means it's also the redemption has begun. That's very important. So the book of Shmuel takes this idea of Egypt, and it says Egypt could be not a geographical place, but a state of being, a state of distance. That's one of the, I mean... Book of Shmuel is amazing in 10 million ways, but the point is that's how the book begins. And to make this point, it doesn't begin in chapter 3 with the story based on the snare. It begins in chapter 1, Chana's prayer, a one verse. If you will certainly see, She says, leave it up to me, and this time I'll get us out of the spiritual Egypt. That's how the book of Shmuel begins. So this verse actually is very significant on many levels. So the Haggadah cites this verse. That God says, God sees the Inuit, and actually, it's a medrash. The medrash says, I have certainly seen. Chana says also, What's clear in the story, and maybe that's what the Haggad is picking up, is that God sees very clearly the Inuit. What is pretty clear in the story is that initially Moshe doesn't fully get it. He doesn't fully grasp it. And the point of the two chapters, God's instruction to Moshe is God's education of Moshe, which continues afterwards because of the covenant and all that. But so God sees. Sometimes God is seeing things that other people can't see. The same thing is true of Moshe. Moshe sees what other people can't see. And that's true especially of Inuit because it's a private state. That's right. Especially of Inuit. But we know he can see because it says, Right. So he can see the state that's internal. He sees to a degree. But he doesn't fully grasp the significance. Because if he fully grasped it, he wouldn't say no ten times, which he does. The Medrash says it. You always see one seeing, says the Medrash. God says to Moshe, I see twice. So that's the first drasha. The second pasuk, So onyenu with the chumash takes the verb to see. But what does amoleinu mean? God saw our travail, hard work, is a difficult drush in the Haggadah. What is that? V'yet amoleinu, very difficult. These drushos seem very simple. When you actually look at them, you say, one second, doesn't make any sense. 
Ve'et amoleinu elu habanim. Amoleinu refers to the children. Kemosh adabar, as it is written. And what does it say in the Amoleinu? Vayar Elohim et b'nei Yisrael vayed Elohim. Is that what it says? No, Kemashim et Markol b'nei Elohim or Tashlifu v'chol v'atchayun. And then the et lachatzenu. No, no, lachatzenu, I know. One second. I have a mistake. Vayaret on Yenu. No, no. No, no, it's like this. I made my error. My mistake. Vayaret on Yenu, so it's a different verse. So, pre-shoot there, God saw the Enoi. The verse that I cited is explicit that God saw, God saw. But that's not the verse that God has. Vayaret on Yenu, God saw our abuse, Enoi, often sexual. So, pre-shoot Derech Eretz, the disruption of sexual relations. As it is written, Vayar Elohim et B'nei Yisrael, Vayeda Elohim. That's the difficult one. That's what I had in mind. What in the world does that mean? God saw and God knew. How does that demonstrate that Onyeinu was preached at Derech Eretz? How does it demonstrate that? Sure, the word Vayeda is often sexual, but, but what's the drush? A friend of mine once suggested the following. He could be right about this, actually. That what the Haggadah is bothered by is something else. That Vayara to Onyeinu... Inui is often used, not only, but often sexual. But it covers a range of possible sexual offenses. For example, Leah says about herself, God saw my Inui. So if it's sexual, what is the sexual offense over there? So presumably what it means is from Leah's perspective, what Leah says to Rachel, and Rachel says to Leah, give me some of those mandrakes that your son found. And Leah says to Rachel, you took my husband, did you also take the mandrakes? Now, what does that mean? You took my husband when you take the mandrakes. What she's saying is, I was married to this guy. One week later, you're married to him. So, and we know he loves you more than me. Now you want to be the mother of his children also. But the point is that from Leah's perspective, we don't see it that way when we read the Chumash. But maybe she's right. From her perspective, she's married to this guy. And this other woman suddenly married, happens to be her sister, is also married to him. We don't see it that way because we know he loves Rachel, he wants to marry Rachel. But there is not a shred of evidence, of course, nor do I believe it to be necessarily true, that Leah and Rachel have the slightest idea. Why would you think so? The father arranges the marriages. Thinking about Yaakov, think about love and the house of love, and think about Afghanistan. Which is what probably what? Yeah, but he kisses her as well. So what? He kisses his cousin. Okay, so fine. They don't have any idea that she has no idea, one. clearly. She took my husband, now you want to take... He From her perspective, signs. what? Rachel gave Leah the signs. Really? In which Torah does it say that? <laughs> Not in the text. Not in the text. No, the Midrashim is the million things. Of course the Midrash has them conspiring together. I got all that. I'm saying what it says in the Torah. In the Torah, that verse suggests to us pretty strongly, she has no clue. I'm married to this guy in a week later. There you are. And now what? You want babies also? What is this? What? So the point is that the Inui over there, what is the Inui is what's inappropriate from her perspective, whatever we may think. She's married to a guy, and now suddenly he's married to somebody else, her own sister no less. That's Inui. What my friend suggested was this, that what the Drush is bothered by is the following. To precious Derech Eretz, so they're not sleeping together. So how is it possible that in the beginning of the book of Exodus, you have Paru Vayishvetsu Vayirbu Vayatzbu. You have this enormous growth, Right? which is taking place, the more Inui, the more children. How is that possible? So the Haggadah has a drush. Elohim Elohim. 
that God is intervening. There's a supernatural, God is creating the children. God is fathering the children. A theme that we have, by the way, elsewhere as well. I mean, you have it in the Christian Bible, but we have it in our Bible. The story, for example, of Isaac. It's clear, Sarah can't have children. That's clear, impossible. But she has a child. How's that possible? So the answer is, you can formulate it any which way you want. The way the Chumash can be read is, God is somehow involved. God is actually the father. God is causing it to happen in some supernatural way. Never, by the way, it never says that Abraham went, went in unto Sarah. It never says that, by the way. It says it was Hagar, never with Sarah. True, that's the way the Christians understood it, with the three people coming to announce it and all that business. But it doesn't mean they're wrong, necessarily. It doesn't mean they're wrong at all. The Pshat is like, so Vayar Elohim, Vayed Elohim means God sees and God knows. Supricious Derecheretz. It's that God intervenes over here. The miraculous growth we attribute to God's supernatural intervention. That was his suggestion, that the proof text actually is intended to resolve a big problem, which is, if you say Onyen was preached with which, by the way, the Midrashim say, famous Midrash, right? Six babies at a time. No, the six at a time is one thing, but I mean, but the different Midrash. Right? A man went from the house of Levi, and he took a daughter of Levi. What, what Rashi calls it, what does the Midrash say? He took the advice of a daughter of Levi. Who's the daughter of Levi? Miriam. What did Miriam say? You got to get back together again. Why should we? If we have a baby, Paro will kill the baby. No, only if it's a boy. Maybe it's going to be a girl, says Miriam. Right? The point is, you see already in the Midrashim that what they're picking up in the Midrashim has to do with Prishut Derecheretz. In fact, this whole sexual thing, which I would add as an important point, is a way of reading the story of Lavan into the story of Mitzrayim. Now, I've got to presume the two stories are the same, which of course they are. So you read one into the other. The Lavan story is all about the mistreatment of the women and Yaakov and all the games that are being played around that. So the Midrashim read that into Egypt, given the fact that the two stories have all kinds of literary parallels. That's the Jewish. That's what I meant to say. Vayaris on Yenu. The second Jewish also was Amoleinu, means the children. As it is written, says the Haggadah, and they cite another verse from Exodus, By the way, the Jerush, in other words, Amoleinu, they saw the, I would say it's more of a, Haggadah understands it as a psychological, right? It's what the Medrash says, why should we have children? They're going to die anyway, what's the point? The Haggadah, B'yas Amoleinu El Habanim, I don't think it has to be read Banim over there. It's hard to know in, in Hebrew. Because the plural for men and women is masculine. So the point is, when the Haggadah says Amoleinu, refers to the psychological state of knowing that if you get pregnant or something, the child may be lost. And I don't think when you read that verse, it's only about the boys. Banim can mean the children, because the fate of the girls isn't that much better. The boys will be thrown into the Nile. But the girls, as the Ramban reports, will be taken by the Egyptians. That can't be great either. So the point is, what is God seeing over here? God is seeing not just the objective. Now, true, that the Egyptians probably tried to hide that initially with the midwives. Maybe even afterwards, it wasn't such public knowledge. But the fact of the matter is, God sees that. But God also sees, psychologically, what it means to try to build something and know that there's a good chance you'll never be successful. That's Amoleinu. The third drasha is actually very difficult. This I've spoken about in the past. It's a drasha that on the surface makes zero sense. God saw our oppression. As it is written, as it is written, and they cite the verse in chapter 3 of Exodus, 
וגם ראיתי את הלחץ אשר מצרים לוחצים אותם. God said to Moses, I have seen the lachats which Mitzrayim is lochets them. And this is intended to prove what the Agada says, what does it say? Dochak. Dochak means to be pressed in, let's say. Right? To be pressed or oppressed. Lachatzenu means dochak. And what's the proof text? The proof text is, but the proof text only proves one thing, that the word lachatz means the lachatz, right? How does it prove that the word lachatz means dochak? The drush of that on the surface makes zero sense at all. I mean, it's the svasemus. Ain't no move on cloud. It's just a ridiculous drush of what? All it proves is lachatz means lachatz. So it's never ridiculous. We always try to try to figure it out, you know? But what in the world could it possibly mean? The targum, by the way, for lachatz is dochak. Okay, see so Aramaic for lachatz, but how does it prove that lachatz is dochak? So I believe that God has something else in mind, actually. That God thinks is a, a superfluous word in that verse. And the word is Mitzrayim. He could have said, I have seen the Lachats. I've seen the Lachats with the Egyptians. What do you mean? So the Haggadah interprets that Lachats is Dochak. Dochak means, Dochak means to be in a narrow space. I have seen the narrow space in which they are placed. Narrow space is playing off the word Mitzrayim, which means Mitzar is a narrow space. And if you look at the verse that's cited by the Haggadah, you will see that God in the next verse says to Moshe, so therefore I am going down to the suffering of Egypt and bring them up, El Eretz Toba Urechava, to a good and broad land. So the Chumash itself, in those two verses, back to back, contrasts Mitzrayim on one hand and the word Rachav or Rachov or Rachava, which means broad, on the other. So there you see that what all the Hasidish Svarim write about, about Mitzrayim being a narrow space, is actually the Pshat in the Chumash, and we have it also in the Halel. Minamesa Karatika Anani Bamerchavka. I call to you from the narrow straits, answer me Bamerchav with enlargement. So the point is, what God is seeing over here are things that are hard to see. Either because people don't talk about it, probably Inui, or maybe precious Derech Eretz, private lives, people don't discuss that. Or the psychological damage when you're in a place where you have no choices, which is what Mitzrayim is about. Being in a very narrow space. You can't go this way, you can't go that way. Interesting, by the way, is that in the Chumash, the word Lachatz, and the word being in a narrow space where you can't go this way or that way, actually is found in a story in the Chumash. And the story is the story of Bilam. When Bilam is traveling, he thinks he wants to curse. He's not going to do it, but he's traveling on his aton, and he comes to a makom tsar, where you can't go this way and that way. And he, when he comes in that story, there you have it, that his foot is against the wall, because it's a narrow space. There you have the word lachatz, appears twice, and the Torah says, b'makom tsar in a narrow space. So Lachatz and Tsar, in the Bilam story, the words come together. The drasha of the Agada is what God sees is about Mitzrayim, that the Mitzrayim, among, apart from everything else, apart from being beaten and oppressed, but psychologically, you're in a very narrow space. So that's the drush of Lachatz Zadochak, Kemoshenemar, 
וגם ראיתי את הלחץ אשר מצרים רוחצים אותם, זה מצרים of it is the problem. And the next verse says God, I'll take them out of מצרים and bring them אל ארץ טובה ורחבה. עם ברכת המזון נעשה את זה כל הזמן. נעוד רוחה השם אלוקינו על שנחלת עליו אותנו, ארץ חמדה טובה ורחבה. grateful for a precious and a broad land. ואל שרוצה איתנו מארץ מצרים, היא תוכנסה למצרים. So, ארץ טובה ורחבה and מצרים are of course exactly opposites. מן המצרה קראתי כה ענני במרחב כה. So that's the drasha. Those are the drashot on the pasuk. On the third pasuk, we cried out to God. The second pasuk, which is also only Mitzrayim, only Book of Exodus citations, is the previous verse, which is shorter. Vayareu otanu ha-Mitzrim vayanunu vayanu aleinu avodah kasha. So the Haggadah has three drashot on that. We may have mentioned this. Vayareu otanu ha-Mitzrim vayanunu, says the Haggadah, as it is written, and it cites a verse in Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh said to his people, let us outsmart them, lest they multiply. And if they join up with the enemy, they will fight against us and rise up from the land. So once again, what is the Haggadah citing a verse from Exodus? What does the verse from Exodus add? So here, already many Haggadot, one in particular, I saw this in many years ago, called Masen Nisim. Masen Nisim is a Haggadah written by the Yaakov of Lisa, who wrote a commentary on Choshen Mishpah called the Nitivot HaMishpat, very famous commentary, and he makes the following observation, which is certainly true, obviously true, and that Vayareu Otanu HaMitzrim, the Egyptians harmed us, that in Biblical Hebrew, the verb Lahara, to harm, does not take typically the objective case. You don't say in Biblical Hebrew usually, Lahara et X. You say in Biblical Hebrew, Lahara le-X. As, for example, when Moshe sends his letters to the king of Edom, he doesn't mention this, but it's true. He says, So in Biblical Hebrew, usually, the verb takes the l to genitive, I think it is, right? Dative, date, I think it's called the dative. So the point is, to. You don't say, et. et is the objective. So the Haggadah, because it deviates from the norm, interprets differently. Says the Haggadah, it doesn't mean the Egyptians harmed us. That's not what it means. Because if it meant the Egyptians harmed us, it would have said, Lohara Ladu. doesn't say that. It says, Lohara Otanu. So the Haggadah interprets differently. Not that the Egyptians harmed us, but the Egyptians ascribed evil to us. They ascribed to us evil, as it is written. And Pharaoh said, let us outsmart them, because they will join up with the enemy, and they'll rise up from the land, and they'll fight against us. The first thing Paro said, before he imposes the Inui and the Avdut, he says they're very dangerous people. He ascribes to us evil intentions. And that's how the Haggadah interprets the verse, Vayareu Otanu HaMitzrim, in light of the verse in the book of Exodus, but it's picking up on the language, actually, to the degree that it could be Pshat, actually, I think. It could actually be the, the most plausible reading of it. And I just had one point, which is that the Haggadah has something else in mind in addition, which is that what makes possible the Inui and the Avdut was first The Ramban at length talks about this, and it's certainly historically accurate, that what makes it possible to persecute another people or person is first to delegitimize the person. Once the person is delegitimized, it's much easier to persecute, which is what God said to Abraham. 
they're going to be strangers in a foreign land. And if you're a stranger in a foreign land, you're on the margins, then it's very easy to persecute you. And then, Vavadum vi nuotam. Yes, Shmuel, what do you want to say? And yeah, then, it's peripheral, but it's a first cousin for sure. Can you just say a word about Ra Kenegit Nehem? Yes, so I mean what Paro says to Moshe. Yeah. So Ra Kenegit Pnechem, I think that the fruitful, what Shmuel is saying is when, when Moshe speaks to Paro, and Paro says, What do you want? And Moshe says, We want to take all our people out to serve God together. And Paro says, No, no, no. He says, I see evil in your face. So I think there I do accept what some of the scholars of the ancient Near East point out, that Ra was the primary Egyptian god. In fact, Ra is actually the sun god. And it is certainly true that when you read the story of the Exodus, you will find that the word Ra or Ra appears in many interesting places, including with the golden calf, by the way. So the Chumash is playing with that in one form or another. And not only in that verse, you have it with the golden calf. Where Aaron says, you know the way the people are. They are Bara, and the Chumash plays on Ra, and Porua, and Pro, and Paro, and all that. So I would say the, my, the larger point I would make is that I think that it is instructive, I don't negate it, to read some of the stories as part of the story as the Egyptian gods, given the fact that God said to Moshe, God says, I will do battle against the gods of Egypt. And given the fact that the ninth plague, the penultimate plague, is darkness, I think one is entitled to read into the story, in addition to everything else, that was something going on in the story vis-a-vis the gods of Egypt. And Ra is their primary god. So that's what I can say about that. What do you want to say, Avram? Just that the whole process of that whole chapter in Shemot interests me so much. Which chapter? The very beginning, when we talk about the first chapter of Shemot, yeah. when we talk about the new pharaoh who doesn't yet die, Yosef. Right. And then we have this sort of coming around in a circle of completion when our God does know it, God's people. Right. right. There's, there's a connection to humanity. But, you know, the verse where... Paro's whole claim against us is that we're multiplying so fearfully, right? Right. It's evil in us. And then it's not... Oh, we're dangerous because there's so many. Dangerous because there's so many. But then it's not so many verses later that he's actually killing his own babies. Mm. So if the focus was numbers, if it really was true that that was his claim, that that was our danger, then why on earth would he be cutting down the numbers of his own people? What do you mean his own people? So that he proclaims later on that all the babies should be killed. No, no, no. He doesn't kill his own babies. Where do you see that? He doesn't save the Jewish babies. No, I don't think that's true. I don't think he's killing his own babies. He says, I don't think that means he's killing his own babies. I don't know where you got that from. I don't think that's true. The context is the the Jewish babies. Like with the midwives. First he tries with the midwives. He does. He does try with the midwives. Yeah. Those who birthed the Hebrews. Not those who birthed the Egyptians. No, no. That's not true. He's not killing his own. No. Of course, the number business, I'll, I'll get to the number business in a second, it's all basically a pretext, that's for sure. I mean, he may be concerned about the numbers, that's possible. But isn't that the pursuit? I mean, in that pursuit, I always thought that it was in the context of killing Jewish babies, and that, of course, that's what it means. But then we were learning that pursuit at one point, and there was a midrash that said there was like this prophecy that he was given that a male savior was going to come. Right. He wanted to make sure that it couldn't be disguised as an Egyptian baby, so he proclaimed that all? Could be. Could be as a midrash to that effect. If you ask me, look, 
whatever. You, one man's opinion. I don't think in the Chumash there's a sense he's killing his own babies. I don't believe that, okay? But it is true. It doesn't say that this is kol ha'ibain ha'yiloda. All the boys should be thrown into the ocean, fine, or the river, Nile, whatever. You could read it that way. I don't think that's the plain meaning of the text or a plausible meaning for that in effect anyway. The Midrash that he's concerned, sort of paranoid, and kills many other people to... Yeah, that's certainly possible that... Makar Bechorot wouldn't make sense. Right? Makar right. Bechorot wouldn't make sense if he never killed the Egyptian babies. This is the whole point that the Egyptians... No, it doesn't... Was that their kids were now dying. It's, it's a quick drive forward. No, but it's not that they were dying for. No, no, it doesn't... No, I don't think that's... I don't think that's plausible in terms of reading the text. I don't think that's plausible. There's something else interesting, by the way, about that. So over here, let's see. So he says, Vayerei Otonu Abitrim, Vayanunu, Right? So here, Vayanunu, right? Roritid Oniyam Yashab Mitzrayim, and Avodah Kasha is Vayavidu Mitzrayim and Pnei Yisrael B'farech. Those are the drashot. So once again, the Haggadah cites verses from Exodus to illuminate the verse here in Deuteronomy. So what are they saying over here? So first of all, what is interesting is this. The verse that cited, the beginning of the, right, that's the verse that cited. What that God is getting at, actually, is citing the verse in the beginning of Exodus, from chapter 1. He placed over them taskmasters in order to oppress them. So the point of the Haggadah, which is a very important point, I think, is that Pharaoh's motive in having us make these store cities, was not to have store cities. Pharaoh doesn't actually care about the cities. Pharaoh doesn't care about the building. The building, actually, it's an example where the verse in Deuteronomy, in a sense, illuminates the verse in Exodus, in case you missed it. The verse in Exodus, he appointed over them taskmasters to be ma'ane them, and they built store cities for Pharaoh. But the point of Deuteronomy is, doesn't mention the store cities. Doesn't care about the store cities. The store cities are a pretext to oppress them. And that is obviously the case when you read further in Exodus, because the story in Exodus, which makes this clear, is when Moshe goes to Paro and says, let us go serve our God together in the desert, a three-day journey and whatever. And Paro gets very upset. He says, how can we do such a thing? You have to work for me. And he instructs his taskmasters to make the work more difficult. So what does he say to do? Take away the straw. And they have to forage for the straw and tell them, you have to meet the same quota of bricks. Tochen Luvenim Titeinu. Takes away the Teven, but they have the Tochen. Now that is very odd, actually, think about it. Because why would Paro do such a thing? If I were Paro, I would have said, how many bricks do they make an hour? 15 bricks an hour. Okay, tell them now they're making 20 an hour. That would make sense. Work harder, make more bricks, and that's the punishment. Because you want to get off from work, I'll make you work even harder to make those 20 bricks. You know, it's, it's uh, hard work. But that's not what Paro says. He says, make the same number of bricks without straw, which is impossible. So, of course, they can't do it. So when they can't meet the number of bricks, the Israelite taskmasters are beaten up. They have the Egyptian taskmasters, and then they appoint the Jews to be the charge of the Jews. And when the Jewish people can't meet the number of bricks, because how could you? You have to waste half your time foraging for straw. So they get beaten up. So obviously, if Paro cared about the cities, he could have made it much simpler. 20 bricks an hour. No. Because he doesn't care about that. So it means, actually, that his motive is Inui, and the next drasha makes the point. Avodah Kasha. So the Haggadah says, as it is written, 
Vayavidu Mitzrayim et Bnei Yisrael beforech. That the Egyptians enslaved Israel beforech. Now the question is, what does parech mean? Very good question. Usually, when you see parech in translation, they will often translate as crushing labor, crushing work, crushing, very difficult, parech, something that breaks you. That's one possibility. But there is actually something that emerged about, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, once again from the study of the ancient Near East. And they discovered in one of the texts of the ancient Near East, something called Pirchu. It's very interesting. Pirchu was a rule, I don't remember where they found it, but Pirchu was a rule that you were not permitted to give a free person slave work. That's called Pirchu. It was work that was reserved for the slaves. Certain kinds of labor was slave work. And you're not, it says this particular text of the ancient Near East, you're not permitted to give to Pirchu, which to give the lower level work to the higher level parts of society. Now you have in the Medrash, actually, I don't know if the Medrash knew of this, I would doubt it, but you have something else in the Medrash about Pirchu, Perech. It says they gave women men's work, and they gave men women's work, they gave old people young people's work, and they gave young people old people's work. And the point of that, it points in the same direction that I just mentioned, was why in the world would you give an old person the work of a young person and vice versa? There's work that requires a lot of experience and expertise, and an older person has the experience, you know? I saw this yesterday, by the way, in the golf tournament. Tiger Woods came to a hole, 12 years ago, and all the other guys hit the ball, and ball into the water. He's played that course so many times, you know what I mean? And he knows exactly where to hit it. And he, he, that's how he won the tournament, actually. So the point is, the experience is a factor. But there's also heavy lifting. So why would you give a very old person heavy lifting when a young guy can carry, you know? So the answer is very simple. Because Paro doesn't care about the work, actually. The intention of Paro is not to accomplish something through the labor. The intention is to break you down. And what can actually breaks you down, avodah kasha, hard labor. So the Medrash understands, and the Pirchu also, that what's hard in life is not the heavy lifting. That's not so hard. But people are willing to work very hard if there's a defined objective. You see at the end of the book of Exodus that there's a call to build the Mishkan. And that Moshe has a big problem because when he calls to build the Mishkan, there's too much work, actually. He has to tell them to stop working because they're donating too much. Just, people are so anxious to build this thing and they don't care how much they give. The hotel is it's too much. So the point is, the Mishkan is the contrast to Avodah Kasha, because the Mishkan, the byword of the Mishkan, in the Torah and in rabbinic thinking is Molechet Machshevet, purposeful labor. What's forbidden on Shabbos? Purposeful labor. But you're actually building something. And if you're building something, people are willing to work very hard. What is difficult, Avodah Kasha, for the Medrash, is Perech. That's difficult, because there's no point to it. I'm building store cities that he doesn't want. He doesn't care about them. If he cared about him, he wouldn't take away my straw, right? He wouldn't give me work that I can't do. That's perech. That's frustrating work. It's work that you don't know how to do it. And if you have work you can't do, it frustrates you. So the Haggadah, actually, is interpreting the verses over here in light of the verses in Sefer Shemot is making a very important point. It's, it's an act of interpretation. It's not an act of validation or support because it doesn't need support. But it's an act of interpretation what does it mean to work for Paro? 
And when you go back to the Chumash and Sefer Shemot, and you realize this is a book that begins with building and ends with building, and the difference between the two of them. We already have pointed out two main differences between them. One of them is that one is purposeful. There's a purpose for it. And the other, probably related, is that when you work for Paro, you don't get any days off. There's no Shabbos. What, are we give them a Shabbos, he says? He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to give them, because the point is, it's when you stop working, when you stop your activity, then you potentially can think about what, about what you're doing. That's the last thing that Paro wants. The Shabbos actually is, can actually redeem the whole week. Shabbos, you think about what happened last week, where am I going next week? But you're constantly working, you can't think. So when it comes to the Mishkan, since it's Melechet Machshevet, it's conjoined with the Shabbat. The Shabbos and the Mishkan are always joined together because it's all part and parcel of the nature of work. What redeems the work and makes it is the fact that some days you don't work. The days that you don't work, actually, actually can have an impact upon the days that you do work. When it comes to Paro, there are no days you don't work. He doesn't want that. So the two things probably are related. The fact that he doesn't want you to think about what you're doing, and there's no Shabbos, and the fact that what you're doing is ridiculous because he couldn't care less about what you're doing. And on the contrary, he wants to give you work that sometimes you can't actually do properly. That's Avodah's Perech. So probably is Pirchu. Probably is. I mean, they know of it, but it's the same, it's the same interpretation, actually. The two things. Yes, sir. Could that be the reason for the Midrash saying that when uh, the Enoi that Sarah did to Hagar, there's a Midrash that says, what was the Enoi? The Enoi was that she took Hagar, of course, out of Abraham's bed and gave her to bring, ta- her task was to bring towels to the bathhouse. So the question always was, in, at least in my mind, so what's that big a deal? But if Pirchu is the, is the, is the right. law of the land, then if, in fact, you're building on the fact that this was, you know, a, a woman from Mitzrayim, maybe even Paro's daughter, you're taking royalty to do something that royalty should do. So what, so what Sarah was doing that was the Inui, that the, I think the Midrash must have understood, was it wasn't the Avodah Kasha, it wasn't hard to bring Talos to the bathhouse, but it was the fact that she was lowered from Abraham's bed and, from the, and from maybe from her prior status and caused to do lowly, lowly. Sure. I mean, as you said, you said her prior status. She starts as a shivcha. Pardon me? She starts off as a shivcha. Right. Shivchat Sarai. Shivcha is a slave. And then she, she is raised in status to an amma. An amma and a shivcha are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. An amma is a higher status. In the Chumash, for example, when it talks about slavery in chapter 21, Mishpatim, it talks about when the girl is sold into slavery... Torah says she shouldn't be a slave. Mm-hmm. The guy's supposed to marry her. And that's a raise of status. To carry the towels to the bathhouse is a typical rabbinic expression. Right? Mm-hmm. In other words, it says so-and-so, with, for example, several times you have one Amora would say, but the other, if you teach me this thing, I will bring your towels to the bathhouse is a way of saying I'll lower myself. If you can teach me the Torah, I'm willing to make myself subservient. That's a typical expression. But your point is very right, that basically she was raised from Shivcha to Amma, but the point is that when Sarah now wants to lower somebody, once you raise someone to a status, it's hard to lower them, but she's taking her down from Amma to Shivcha, that's the Idui, that's exactly what Pirchu is. Yeah, yes, Lord. I'm curious, you draw the distinction between hard labor and labor that brings you. And since the Haggadah is this like generational lesson plan, is there something in the Haggadah that is 
try to teach you that hard labor is inevitable. In other words, you're going to encounter hard, hard labor. But here's a guidepost to how, I don't know, I haven't thought it through, but how the Haggadah can be seen as a plan to not allow it to break you. And what I don't know. The only hard labor, I mean, the Seder could be hard labor, <laughs> but the point is... What it tells you to focus on on life. I have to think it through, but it would seem that you've made this very clear distinction between Pharaoh not really wanting their work. He wanted right. to break them. So, sure. right. you know, what's the point of that? Work is bad enough. It's, I don't know, it's just... The Agada presupposes, right? Right? You have the, well, let's say the other statement. Within the Haggadah, there are two different strands. We have two strands in our Haggadah. One is we were slaves and now we're free. And the other is, and we used to worship idols, the Asher Kervanu Hamakom Avodato. Now we are in God's service. So the word Avodah appears in both places. Avodah with power means you're actually a slave. Avodimayinu. But Kervanu Hamakom Avodato. God has brought us near to God's service, which is the, basically the Mishkan. If you think about the Mishkan, the Mishkan is the place where you serve God. God says it to Moses, someday tabdunet Elohim or God says avodayhem. So I think one could reflect upon it, the Seder, is what would it mean to be the servant of God? The Chumash makes it very clear that God makes it, that there's nothing more clear than God saying to Moshe, to tell Paro, shalach amivi avduni. It's a replacement of being an Eved of Paro is replaced by being an Eved of God, what would that mean to be God's Eved? That's the question. What does it mean to be God's servant? It means to do the work that God commands you to do. Servant doesn't choose the work. We don't choose. The servant is told what to do. Now, the question in life is, how do you figure out what God has commanded you to do? Is a very good question. But the idea of Eved Hashem is exactly that, that wherever it takes you. They take you to all kinds of places. But it's not really about... It's not about us. And that's, I think, a way to read the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus can be read in two different ways, completely two different ways. One is, it's about human freedom. We were slaves unto Pharaoh. We had no freedom. We couldn't make choices. And God has taken us out of Mitzrayim, those narrow places, and now gives us the opportunity to make our own decisions. And that's about human dignity and human possibility and all that. And that's certainly true in the book. That's for sure. And then there's another way to read the book of Exodus, which I think is the primary way, which is it's about not serving Paro. Serving Paro take you to a very bad place. It's about being God's servant, basically. And as God says, Shalach Amivi Abduti. So, Avodahim, God, these are my servants that I took out of Egypt. So the point is, then the reflection would be, what would it be to be a servant of God? I mean, to do what God commands you to do. What is God commanding me to do? or any of us, for that matter. How do you know when God is commanding you? That's a very good question. I think that it's a question that interests, I think, within certain elements of Hasidut. It's, I mean, you have it with the with Chabad, okay? Let's leave out the Messianic stuff. Leave that out. But it's very clear that they are brought up to believe that they have a mission. That's what it means to be God. To, they know what their mission is, whatever it is. And whatever the mission is, they figure it out. This is where I spend my life. Right? Maybe I'm a have a open up a Chabad house and who knows where in, in Thailand or something like that. And that's where I am the rest of my life because that's where I was sent. So that's the sense of sense of mission. You have this with certain groups. You have it sometimes certain Christian groups as well. 
This is where I'm supposed to be. This is my mission. So you have that, I think, within Hasidut, you have that thinking in a very deep way. And then the question becomes, how do you know when God is speaking to you? How do you know this? You know, can you tell? Whatever. I remember once talking to a fellow who actually lived in our own shul. It became a brass of a chassid. So I said to him once, very interesting guy, I said, what are you up to? He was at the same time, actually, he taught, I think, second grade. And at the same time he was teaching second grade, he was the mashkiach, I think, in Mao Gilboa. Same guy, same time. So at second grade, he was the mashkiach of the yeshiva. And I said, what are you up to, Don? What are you up to, Don? He says, not sure what the next step is. I'm waiting for God to tell me. So I said to him, if God does tell you, you think you're going to hear? He says, I think so. I said, so what you say, you know, I think I will. That's what he's saying. So that is something to reflect on. What does it mean to be a servant of God? Which is different than tikkun olam. That's not against it necessarily. Servant of God is different. Servant of God means I'm here to do God's work, wherever it takes me. It's not really about me at all. It's about doing God's work. And that, I think, is a way to read the book of Exodus. And I think that is essentially what Moshe says to Paolo. You have to understand, the word gadat is the key word of the book. God is going to visit the place upon you, that A, you know that God exists. I never heard of this God. Well, you will know, because there's going to be plagues. And number two, you'll know that God exists here, in this land. I don't mean someplace else. The carrier of Aretz. And number three, you will know there's no God like this God. God's more powerful than all your gods. We say, right? So the point is, God didn't say to Paro, I'm here to save the oppressed people. Moshe never says that to Paro. God is trying to teach you something about God. God wants God's name to be glorified in the world. That's what it says. I mean, so that's a way to read the book. What would it mean to say, something to think about. We are brought near to God's service. What does it mean, God's service? It's the famous story of the Svasemis, you know? Came back from Shorewood. Svasemis' father died when he was like seven or eight years old, very young. He was raised by his grandfather, Chedusha Yorim. Anyway, he comes back from Shorewood, I think it was Rosh Chodesh. He was seven years old. He said to his grandfather, today was my favorite prayer. I was in Hallel, my favorite prayer. What's your favorite prayer? Anna Hashem, Anna Hashem. His grandfather said, Anna Hashem, Oshiana? You mean that? No, no, no. Anna Hashem, Kianiyah, I want to be God's servant. And that is the, a certain way of thinking. You do have it in certain places, mostly in the, I say, in, in certain circles of the Hasidah, maybe some of the Haredi world, and you have it in the Christian world in some places. And that's where you have it, actually. It's very powerful. It gives you an answer. Otherwise, you have to find your own. Well, you've got to figure out what your mission is. That's right. the tricky part of it. Yeah, so... That is the tricky part. I can tell you a story that my wife, when she was... I forget where she was. Maybe it was she went down south to, to see this colony in this place. Or maybe it was... I forget where it was. But there was a couple, two academics. They were about to go to Germany to assume some position in, in the university there or something like that. And then suddenly, they... She said, when are you traveling to Germany? No, we're not going there. We're going someplace else. We have a different mission. They have figured out they have a different mission. Their mission was to go to Washington, D.C. There's a place for drug addicts. That's where they spent the next many years, taking care of the drug addicts in Washington, D.C., instead of the university and wherever it was in Frankfurt. Because that was their mission. God had told them where to go. So they had to go. It's not so simple to figure that out. But that's what they understood. That's the hard part, to know what is the mission, basically. But everybody figure out for themselves. Sometimes we're big experts on the other guy's mission. But my own mission, we don't know. Let me just say one thing about Magid, okay? So these, these are the drashot. 
Today we mentioned the drushot on the second and third pasuk, which are all drushot from Sefer Shemot, every single one of them. It's unbelievable. At the end of Magid, so you have the drushot, and the end of Magid, you have the statement also found in the Mishnah. The Mishnah gives us all the instructions. Rabbi Gamliel said, if you have to mention Pesach Matzu Maror, if you didn't mention Pesach Matzu Maror, you have not fulfilled your obligation to tell the, to tell the, to to discuss the Pesach. So you have to mention the Pesach and the Matzah and the Maror. And after we mention the Pesach and the Matzah and the Maror, then we say that in every generation we see ourselves as leaving Egypt. And then God did not only save our ancestors; we were also redeemed. And therefore, we're going to sing to God. We're going to sing a new song. And we begin, at that point, to recite the Hallel. The Hallel consists of six psalms, actually. And we usually read all six, one after the other. Very strange. At the Seder, we don't read all the psalms together. We read, our practice is to read the first two psalms. The second psalm is B'tzeit Yisroami Mitzrayim. And after we finish B'tzeit Yisroami Mitzrayim, we make a blessing. And then Geffen, which is the second cup, together with the blessing of Gal Yisrael. And that's the end of what we call Magi. What do we make of this practice, which is very strange to put it mildly? And actually, in the Mishnah, is a dispute in the Mishnah about exactly this point. Not whether you start hollow before the meal. Everybody agrees you start hollow before the meal. But the Machok is Beishamai Beishilel, is how much of halal you say before the meal. Beit Shammai says, you say only the first psalm. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Abdei Hashem. Psalm 113, first psalm of halal. And Beit Hillel says, no, no, you say the two psalms. You say, hallelujah, Abdei Hashem, and Pitzet Yisrael mi Mitzrayim. And then you end that part of the halal, make a blessing on Magid, Hashem Golanu, and then you begin your meal. So what are they fighting about? So presumably, Beis Hillel, we understand, is the way you end the first part of the Seder, which is Magid. And I would say they both agree, Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel both agree, that you can't just tell the story without beginning to say Hallel. Because the night is a night of gratitude, and it's not just you tell the story or study the story, but you also have to be grateful for freedom. And so we certainly begin Hallel. The disagreement of Beis and Beit Hill is Beis Hill says you end the first part of Hallel with Beit Yisrami Mitzrayim, and it's interesting that Beis Hill's thinking. We always think of it as you're breaking up Hallel into two pieces. You know what I mean? Six Psalms. You're breaking it up. You're saying two Psalms before and four Psalms afterwards. I actually wonder about that whether it's you know some kind of intrusion into the basic nature of Hallel, or whether fundamentally. Hallel is to be broken up this way because the second psalm is B'tzeit Yisrami Mitzrayim and the last psalm is Minametsa Karatika. And I wonder about that. I write about this in the Haggadah. I believe that actually it makes perfect sense to break it up that way. That the first two psalms end with Mitzrayim and the last four psalms end with Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim in the last psalm is not a geographical Mitzrayim. It's a personal Mitzrayim. I call to you from the narrow places. Give me enlargement. So in any event, that's Beishilo's Shita. It is interesting to note, by the way, as I do in the Haggadah, that the psalm, B'tzeit Yisraeli Mitzrayim, which ends Magid, is one of the few psalms we have, which is actually a psalm which is written in the form of question and answer. In fact, there are four questions. Malachayam kitanus hayadenti harim So they're questions. And the answer... 
מלפני אדון חורי ארץ, מלפני אלוהו יעקב, ההופכי עצור גמיים, חלום ישלמיינו מים. So it's a psalm, we end with a psalm that takes the form of question and answer, which is exactly the form that we have throughout the entire Magid, which begins with Manishtana. You have Keneged Arba Barim Dibra Torah, and even, by the way, when Rabbi Gamliel's statement of Pesach, Matzah Umarar, so Tabori, who wrote the commentary on the Haggadah, said a very good thing. What Tabori pointed out very nicely was that in the Mishnah, when Rabbi Gamliel says in the Mishnah, you have to mention the Pesach and the Matzah and the Marar, and the Mishnah says, Pesach, because of X. Matzah, because of X. Marar, because of X. When you look at the Haggadah, they reframe the Mishnah. Pesach zo sha'anu al-chuyim al-shummah. They present it in terms of question and answer. To fit it in with the general format of the whole Seder, which is all about question and answer, and the psalm that ends the first part of the Seder, Petzeshir, Swami Mitzrayim, is a psalm of question and answer. Why do you run away? Why do you flee? Why do you skip all hills? And answer. We understand Beis Hillel. It's very nice. Now the question is Beis So Beis I want to say, and I'll stop with Beis... What's the question in the last psalm? No, 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 I said that. I said that the question in the psalm, in Betzeg Yisrael, in Mitzrayim, is there you have questions. There's no question in the last psalm. Psalm 114, the last psalm we say before we eat the meal. The psalm that ends Magid is Betzeg Yisrael. Right, there you have the, the second part of the statement doesn't have questions and answers. The second part of the statement is Halo, that you don't have. So I would say the following. What is Beishamai hold? So Beishamai holds, you just say one psalm. So Bishamah says two things. First, Bishamah's opinion is you start halal. You can't sit down to the meal before you started saying halal. You have to at least begin with some kind of gratitude before you can eat your meal. But I think it's more than that, actually. I think Bishamah is saying something else about Psalm 113. I don't think Beit Hill disagrees. I think probably agrees. Psalm 113 begins, halal begins. So the psalm begins by saying, praise God, Avdei Hashem. I just spoke about this before. Mm-hmm. All you servants of God, praise God. That's how Psalm 113 begins. It addresses the Jewish people as Avdei Hashem. Right. And it goes on over there. In the theme of the psalm is the following. This particular psalm, by the way, has an interesting parallel to the prayer of Hannah after she gives birth. Very similar parallel to it. The difference is also interesting. But the Psalm 113, which starts with Avdei Hashem, praise God, you servants of God, then speaks of a God who raises up people from the lowest places. God is in the highest place, who looks down to the lowest places. The point, I think, is this. If you think about it, it starts with you servants of God, Avdei Hashem. It describes the people that God redeems as being the absolute bottom of the barrel, quite literally. Me offer dao, ashpo, from the dunghill, right? Yorim evyon, from the garbage, God lifts up the evyon and the dao and lifts them up, uyoshivi im divim im divayamo, to sit them along the divim, the princes of God's people. So I was thinking... Now that psalm, actually, is a very, very appropriate psalm to end the first part of the Seder. 
Because if you think about it, what is our story is the story of the Exodus. Yeah, the main text is from Deuteronomy, but all the explications are from the book of Exodus. It's all based in the book of Exodus. So what is, what is the frame of the book of Exodus? The frame of the books of Exodus starts with the people who are seen as the other, the Gerim, the Avdut, the Inui, the abuse on every level, and then eventually the redemption from Egypt. We walk out of Mitzrayim, start our journey in the desert, and the book of Exodus ends with the building of the Mishkan. That's how it ends. It begins with the building for Pharaoh, work which he doesn't care about, actually. But it ends with purposeful labor. And how actually is the Mishkan built? It's interesting. What is the key word in the building of the Mishkan? Chachma is a key word. Right. It's the word I'm looking for. Chachma is true. The word is Nedava. Nedava. It's all voluntary work. Kol Nediv Lev. Ebiyu Nedava. The point is, if you think about it, this is actually a very, I think, a very important point, that the book begins with a bunch of slaves, actually. By the end of the book, they're all benefactors. They're actually contributing to the Mishkan. It's exactly what the psalm says. You took us from the lowest places. You were a bunch of slaves, basically. But now you're God's slaves. Now you're God's servants. So God's servants are actually ennobled and they are dignified to the degree that they can be raised up to the highest level. And the highest level is actually to the benefactors of God's people, to the volunteers, as it were. Which, of course, is the story of the book of Exodus. You ask about the aspirations, so it's the aspirations. I think it's actually very interesting. I remember the first mission, which talks about the Seder. The mission talks about everybody has to have four cups of wine at Pesach. And even the poorest person has to have four cups of wine. And it's very clear that the way the Gemara understands it is that it's everybody's obligation to make sure that everybody has four cups of wine. Because even the people themselves are impoverished. The impoverished ones have to make sure that the other poor people have enough that they, things they need for, to observe the kagamatzos, Pesach, the wine, the matzah, etc. That's a very important point because the point is that to see yourself as a free person, no matter whatever your economic situation may be, but to see yourself as a free person means that you understand your responsibilities of being free, the responsibilities of freedom. And that's exactly what the psalm picks up, and that's what the book of Exodus picks up. I'm responsible for the other person, because as bad as my state is, there's always someone worse off. And our responsibility, the responsibility of freedom comes with a heavy responsibility. Avdei Hashem is a heavy responsibility. So, bless us all. We should realize our responsibilities. Amen. Amen.